Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Last week we looked at the first two verses. Now we'll be looking at verses 3 through 8 as we continue in this series on living sacrifice, trying to understand what it is that we've been called to do as Christians, how we've been called to live. So hear the word of the Lord. This is Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, bless the preaching of your word. Speak to us through these words and change us. In Christ's name, amen. I promise you, but by the time this sermon is over, we will have probed one of the deep mysteries of Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. We will also have discussed dancing properly and how important it is that we all dance properly. Perhaps the pastor will even bust a move before we're done. Actually, one of the things I just said is not going to happen during this sermon. I'll let you guess which of those things it is. Maybe you already have. Before we get to that, though, we need to look at Paul's words, and and orient ourselves. Because last time, when we looked at verses 1 and 2, we saw that as Christians, we've got a certain calling in our lives. We've been called, in Paul's words, to be living sacrifices. So last time, we talked about what it means to be a living sacrifice. And now, as we continue, Paul is going to develop that idea, and he's going to speak to us about three things. First, what stops us? from living sacrifice. What stops us from living sacrifice? Then he's going to talk about where living sacrifice happens. This thing that we're called to, where does that happen? What's the context in which it happens? And finally, we'll talk about what living sacrifice really is, what it consists of, uh, what you'd be doing if you were living your life as a living sacrifice. All of those things, but let's start with obstacles. What is it that stops us from living sacrifice? In verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, the greatest obstacle to living sacrifice is the sin of pride. It's as simple as that. It's pride. When Paul lays out the call and he says, you're to be a living sacrifice, the very next thing he talks about is pride. Thinking of yourself more highly 
then you should. That pride is the enemy of living sacrifice. The sin of pride, which we all struggle with, is the greatest obstacle to living the life that you've been called to live. Now, obviously, that's true in respect to God. We talk about that a lot. We have to remember we're creatures. God is the creator. So when it comes to how we think about God, we've got to be humble and not proud. We can't put on airs. We can't think that we are in a position to judge God or to scrutinize his ways, as we were talking about in Romans 11. So clearly, we don't want to be proud in the presence of the creator. But in the context of Romans 12, as Paul unfolds his theme, it's not pride in regard to God that he's really focusing on. It's pride in regard to one another that is the problem. Being proud in relation to the people around you, particularly other believers. Being too proud when you look around you at the other people that that are in this community, that's the greatest obstacle to living sacrifice. Paul says God has assigned a measure of faith to all of us. God is working in all of us, but differently, to different extents in different ways. If that's true, then you shouldn't be surprised when you look through a community, a congregation, and you see that not everybody is at the same place in life. The sin of pride encourages us to look around, to to make that observation, and then to realize, I'm not as bad as some of these people are. I'm not as bad as most of these people are. Paul says, you've got to understand, God has assigned a measure of faith to all. And that's true for you, it's true for others. And you've got to think of yourself with sober judgment and not be too proud, not be too puffed up. You've got to start considering, in other words, why it is that God has joined you to them. Of all the congregations in the world, why did God bring you together with them? What was the purpose of doing that? You look around, you compare where people are at, and you say to yourself, well, I'm more enlightened than them, or I'm more faithful than them, or I'm more compassionate than them, or I'm more confessional than them. I'm more devoted. I'm more spiritual than them. Which all boils down to really pious ways of saying, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. I'm better at at, at doing Christianity than they are, which is pride. It's just a pious way of concealing the sin of pride. Now, the thing is, you might be right. I'm not saying that when you look around, you're not going to find people who objectively are not as faithful as you are, are not as confessional as you are, not as spiritual as you are. That may be so. But then you've got to ask yourself, what was the reason that God had for giving you what you have? for giving them what they have, and then for bringing you together the way that he has. And if you do that, the sin of pride loses traction in your life. And you recognize that whatever it is that you possess that others don't was given to you for a reason. Part of that reason has to do with the unity that God has made between one and another. Even though we're not equal in our attainments and achievements. God has brought us together, and he's done it 
for a reason. It brings us to pride and prejudice. I know not all of you are as uh, enamored with Jane Austen as I am, but occasionally you have to endure some Jane Austen in order for me to make my points. If you've ever read Pride and Prejudice, or more likely seen one of the film or television adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, and if I weren't in the pulpit, I would tell you which are the good ones and which are the bad ones, um, you know that early on, Mr. Darcy does something that really undermines everything. Mr. Darcy refuses to dance. He's this very wealthy guy. He goes to the, the country dance with his wealthy buddy, Mr. Bingley, and the two of them, while there, are invited to dance with the assembled party. Mr. Bingley happily enters into it and dances, and Mr. Darcy does not. He prefers not to. He chooses not to dance. Why? On one level, it's an easy question to answer because it's given away in the title, Pride and Prejudice. The problem is his pride. His pride will not allow him to dance. And so if you understand the way stories work, you know that if at the beginning of the story some character reveals that his problem is pride, then by the end of the story, that pride is going to have to be humbled so that that character can be redeemed. And sure enough, if you read the book, it does seem like on some level that's what takes place. But that interpretation always rubbed me the wrong way because I sympathized with Mr. Darcy because I, too, would choose not to dance. If I found myself uh, a bun- uh, among a bunch of strangers suddenly invited, hey, go out there and, and show us your moves, um, I would prefer not to. And I can think of plenty of explanations for Mr. Darcy's reluctance, which don't have to be negative. Maybe he's just a reserved kind of guy. Maybe he just has a, a, an inner dignity that doesn't allow him to do such things. I can relate to that because I often think of myself as a reserved and dignified person, especially when others are laughing at me, as they often do. Maybe his problem is introversion. Mr. Darcy just, he's drained by being in a group of people. By, by, by exerting himself in that way, he would rather be at home with a book, and in that I sympathize greatly, and I don't see the problem with his actions. Maybe he's also just socially awkward. He doesn't know how to be around people, that sort of I can think of all sorts of excuses for his choice that don't have to be sinful, and and I can interpret them sympathetically so that if we were throwing a dance and everybody was dancing and and someone came for the first time into the group and said, you know what, I'd rather not dance, my reaction wouldn't be, oh, you must be prideful. I can think of a lot of ways to justify that choice that don't have to be sinful, but the characters in the story don't relate to it that way. And that's the mystery. That's the question. Like, these are nice, normal people, just like you and me, and they could easily make excuses for this behavior. They could explain it away. But everybody's a little bit shocked and scandalized by this action, and the question is, why? Sure, he's proud, and so he doesn't dance, but what does that pride threaten? That's the question. Why do people react to it the way that they do, so much so that it's a problem that has to be reversed in order for him to become a likable character? What's going on there? Well, the answer we can find as we continue in our passage and look at verses 4 and 5, Paul says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, 
and individually members one of another. In other words, there's a context to living sacrifice. That we're called to live lives of living sacrifice, of self-sacrifice, but the context of that happens in the body. It happens within the community of Christ. That's where we've been called to live out this sacrifice. And that's the problem, I would argue, with Mr. Darcy not dancing. The question is, what is threatened by that choice? The answer is the community. And Mr. Darcy is not threatening the success of the dance. He's threatening the connectedness of the community, what the dance represents. So in order to understand this, I'm going to share with you some thoughts from Roger Scruton's essay, Dancing Properly. This is going to be really good, especially for young people who are concerned that you don't know how to dance properly. And according to Roger Scruton, you don't. This will be helpful in understanding the proper way to dance. But when we talk about dancing here, I want you to see the metaphor of community. Because the kind of dance that we're talking about isn't the kind of dance we do now, where everybody has their sort of self-expressive moves. I'm sorry for even pretending that I'm doing my, my moves. But, uh, but you get the idea. We don't dance the way they did. right? You've got to picture this sort of communal coming together, an interaction between partners, trading off one with another, a kind of uh, microcosm of the community being acted out. That's the kind of dancing that Mr. Darcy won't do. And it's the kind of dancing Roger Scruton says uh, we ought to pay more attention to. Because this old style of social dance is a picture of embodied community. So this is Scruton. He says, through the dance, we are made aware of our freedom and aware of it as a shared social condition, precisely because our movements are not means to an end, but ends in themselves. We experience them as movements of the whole person. The self is made present in the movements of the dance, is embodied there and comes face-to-face with the other who completes it. And despite the differences in in rank and station among the dancers, there is an equality that prevails as well. Social dancing of the kind I've praised, Scruton writes, not merely exercised the virtues of freedom and order, but obeyed the precept of equality. Anybody could learn the steps, and everybody could join in, regardless of how agile, young, or attractive they were. And these equal selves embodied in that that moment of interaction are learning something about society or learning something about community, especially the importance of deferring to one another. He says the traditional formation dance involves a posture toward the other, the partner. It includes the other, essentially, and includes him or her as a free being whose Every movement is consensually related to a movement of one's own. This withness is a kind of template for all other social relations, a form of mutuality that illustrates the kindness of our kind and which shapes the ability to accommodate and defer to others in relations of reciprocity. In other words, in the dance that Mr. Darcy won't enter into, there is a social acknowledgement of equality among those who are not equal, that they come together and interact together and are essential one to another. 
That's the threat of not entering into it. It is a denial of that mutuality, denial of that, that everyone's right to be in community together. Paul doesn't use the metaphor of dance. He uses the metaphor of a body. He says a body has many members, different parts, hands, legs, arms, brains, ears. You get the idea. And they don't all do the same thing. They have different functions, but they all go together. They all create a whole. There's a oneness, a a unity that they possess. And this is what the body of Christ is like. There's a unity made out of difference. Now, in that unity, we don't lose our individuality. In the same way that, that when God melds people from every nation, kindred, and tribe, they don't lose their ethnicity, their, their identity, their history, but rather all of that difference is brought together into unity. And the same thing is true for us as individuals. Paul says, individually, we are members one of another. So the body of Christ creates unity between different people, which means it creates obligation relationship between those whose faith and circumstances and gifting are unequal. That we may not have as much as others in terms of faith, gifting, whatever, but there is a commitment that we have to one another, an obligation that we have to one another. In the body of Christ, just as in the social dance, we all move together. We all move together or we're not a community. Pride is the sin that keeps us aloof. Like Mr. Darcy, we look at the community of the church, we look at the dance, and we say, I'd rather not. I'd rather not be a part of that. I don't want to to be part of that give and take. I don't want to be united to those people. Because we see them in worldly terms as, as unequal to us, not like us, not sharing what we care about. And the antidote to that sin is to humble yourself and to dance. To humble yourself and to enter in. To recognize you may be the head, but a head without a body is no good. That all of the parts are necessary. That you actually need the other parts of the body in order to be whole. That you have a responsibility to one another. And that what has been given to you was given to you not to keep but to give. And you've been surrounded by people who need what you have to give. That's why the life of living sacrifice is lived out in the body of Christ because the body of Christ is a a, a unity with a whole lot of diversity within it, a whole lot of inequality within it, a whole lot of need within it. And if you look around and you ask yourself, why am I here? The answer is to give. The answer is to give. So that's where living sacrifice takes place, where it happens in the body of Christ. But what is it? What is living sacrifice? Living sacrifice, the whole substance of it, all it is in a nutshell, as simple as as this, sharing your gifts. If you look in your order of worship, it's never a bad idea to go back and to reflect on this statement from time to time. But if you look in the back, this uh, a vision of ours, grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts. 
with the world. When we say that, sharing their gifts, this is what we're talking about. These words of Paul's are what we have in mind. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is what we're talking about when we say we're here to share our gifts. Gifts are given in order to be shared by their very nature. God didn't give us gifts to hoard them. God didn't give us gifts so that we could stack them up and count them. And he certainly didn't give us the gifts that he gave us so that we could compare ourselves to others in pride and say, wow, I've got a lot more gifts than they do. All that means is you've got a lot more giving to do in God's economy. You'll note, as you look at Paul's list of gifts and the way that he talks about these gifts, that, that our gifts differ. We don't all have the same gifts. God has given us, as we saw earlier, differing measures of faith, different degrees of grace, different gifts. He's equipped us differently. Don't worry about it. He knows what he's doing. There's a reason why he's done this. And there's a reason why he's brought us together with these gifts. The point is to discover what gifts you possess and then to share them. And to share them. It's also interesting to note the way that Paul speaks here, uh, that, that we, we give according to our gifts, if that makes sense. You know how uh, the animals propagate according to their kind? There's something similar happening here where we give according to our giftedness. A lot of times when you hear people talking about like giving, sharing, like meeting the needs of others within the church, what you hear, what you imagine you're hearing is something like, in order to be a good Christian, you're going to need to do a lot of things that you don't want to do. And there's some truth in that. We all are called to do things we don't want to do. But, but that's not exactly the way this sacrifice works. It's not that, that in order to please God, occasionally you have to volunteer for the nursery. Or in order to please God, occasionally you have to clean up after a service. Or in order to please God, occasionally you have to, I don't know, uh, you know, grit your teeth and tell the pastor that was a good service. Whatever it is. Whatever thankless task you can imagine. And of course, those are different for us because what one person doesn't want to do, other people would much rather do because of those differences. But the point here is not, occasionally you'll have to chip in and do stuff that you really don't like to do. It's that you've been gifted. You've been given talents and abilities You are able to do certain things, and you are expected to use those gifts for others. It's a bigger deal. A lot of times when we think about sacrifice, we think about it sort of like, um, you know how it was in in the olden days, the Middle Ages, that sort of thing. You lived a a life of, of pillage and killing and that sort of thing. But towards the end, when you began to feel feeble, you endowed a, a monastery so they could pray for your soul. And it was all good. You could do a little bit of good, and it would cancel out all the bad that you did, and that you kind of christened your deeds. That's not sacrifice. The sacrifice is taking the, the gifts that you have. Oftentimes, things that, that are so tied to you, so wrapped up in your identity, you don't think of them as having been given to you. You think of them as who you are. And to use those things 
glory of God is the good of one another. That's living sacrifice. Give according to our gifts. See that the things we've been given that we're good at, that we love, the things where, where we have aptitude and ability, this is a path of calling. That all that is is God equipping us to give in those areas. The other thing to notice here, too, is Paul's list is not exhaustive. If you're one of those people that every time Paul starts listing gifts in the church, you start making like your bullet list, saying, okay, there's five gifts. Uh, but what's the difference between teaching and exhorting? And how does that relate to prophesying? And where do we get that information? That's the wrong way to read what Paul is doing here. Paul is throwing things out, not giving us an exhaustive list, not saying, okay, it's, these are the gifts and there are no others, but to give you sort of an overwhelming sense of the kinds of gifts that have been given. All sorts of gifts, some public, others private, some that, that seem uh, exceptional, others that seem commonplace, and a lot of overlap. There are a lot of people gifted in, in more than one of these areas. The point is not just to give us a list. The point is to show the way that everything, all of life, all ability and equipping comes from God's gifting. That all of it is to be used on behalf of others. And this is living sacrifice. We know this because this is how Jesus lived. Because this is the way he lived for us. Jesus did not hold himself aloof. He did not look at the, the, the community of humanity and, and in pride say, I don't want any part of that. Jesus entered into the dance. He became one of us. Then he sacrificed his life for us. He had every right to be proud, but instead he humbled himself and became like us. And through his sacrifice, he made us into a community. He made us into his body. And now, that community, that body is where we're called to be a living sacrifice. He's gifted us so that we can have something to give to others. He gives to us so that we can minister to others in his name. Jesus is like the parent who, when you come to church, gives a child money to put into the offering. Right? So you have the experience of having something to give. But really, it's something that was just handed to you. It's something that was just given. And with the purpose of putting it into the offering plate, if, if your mom or your dad gives you money to put into the offering plate and instead you pocket it, that's bad. And yet that's what we do. God gives us gifts. He intends for us to use them, and we pocket them. We use them for ourselves and only ourselves. We forget the lesson that Christ's life exemplifies. We're here to meet the needs of others. But you can't know those needs until you've entered into the dance. You can't know the needs of others until you've entered into the community, until you've opened yourself and made yourself vulnerable. We've exposed the fact of your giftedness, even at the risk of being called upon to give. That's what being in community involves. We've been gifted so that we can serve others. And there's actually no satisfaction and using our gifts only to serve ourselves. The whole chronicle of, of people who are successful in the eyes of the world, but miserable in their own eyes, is a testament to this fact that when we hoard what we've been given, 
We use it only for ourselves. We make ourselves miserable because it's not what we were made for. We were made to give. The pride stops living sacrifice, so you've got to set your pride aside. Christ's community is where living sacrifice happens. You've got to enter into the body. And if sharing gifts is what living sacrifice means, you've got to do what that vision statement says. You've got to find your way and start sharing your gifts with the world. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.